He's confessing alone. No, that, no, but like, but the reason Hamlet doesn't kill him is because if he confesses, then he'll go to heaven, and like, yeah, that'll be okay. But is that is that like a? That, no, a, that's a not Christian that, idea. That's a Christian idea. No, it's a okay. Christian idea. That you can that um, it's not a good idea to think you'll confess later um, because you might get hit by a truck um, or a horse-drawn carriage. Sorry. You might get hit by Hamlet. Or you might get hit by Hamlet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's by far the worst of those those fates. It's like hit by a bus, fall off a building, Hamlet. Yeah. Oedipus. <laughs> Hamlet the Hammer. Um, well, one interesting thing uh, also about Hamlet then is that it is explicitly against um, canon law to try to time someone's death to determine what will happen to them after death. And um, one of the things the ghost complains about is that he died without being able to confess, uh, that he was sleeping in his garden, and um, Claudius into the porches of mine ear did pour the leprous distillment, and um, he died. And he says, unshriven, disappointed, unannelled. And uh, remember what shrive means, anyone? To shrive? To make a confession? Um, to, to shrive actually means to hear a confession and to give absolution. Um, so if he dies unshriven, it means he dies without uh, the, without the um, rituals of death, which include extreme unction, um, the, without the last rites. And um, that's why he's in purgatory. That's what he tells Hamlet. The reason I'm in purgatory is that I died with all my sins on me. Hamlet now sees Claudius. He thinks he's confessing, and therefore he thinks that if he kills him, he says, and so he goes to heaven, and so am I revenged. Um, and he says, no, that's not going to do. I'm going to get him sometime when he's drinking or partying or doing something that will send him to hell instead of to heaven. Um, but that is explicitly against canon law. Um, that's why when people are executed, they are sent chaplains so they can make confession. It's not only a nice thing to do, it's the law. Um, so if you were to execute someone without letting them see a priest, um, what you would be doing is a violation of canon law. And um, that's what Othello says to Desdemona. He's about to kill her, but he wants to make sure that she is on good terms with God, even though, as he thinks, she is an adulteress. Um, that she and Cat, that she has been cheating on him with Cassio, and um, therefore he's really concerned about her soul, even though he hates her or um, hates and loves her um, as a human being. So that's that's worth knowing. Um, but it also means that the um, that even though James is the, 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 all the witchcraft stuff. Um, that's coming up. That also goes back to some ideas in Christianity as a whole, but maybe more in Catholicism than in Protestantism. Are you raising your hand, Tish? No. no. Okay. <coughs> um, and um, it all goes back to Saul and the Witch of Endor, um, and also to um, uh, commands in Deuteronomy against witchcraft. So. All of, all of these are issues, and it's also partly an issue because what James is doing is the King James version of the Bible 
is the version of the Bible in which a kind of English or British Protestantism is established. Um, and it's the, the Bible that will be used in both Scotland and England. The other thing that's going to be used in both Scotland and England that people have been working on before James, but that they're revising under King James, is the Book of Common Prayer. So the Book of Common Prayer is the prayer book that's used in churches. And again, there's a pro the Protestant version is in some ways, the Anglican version, you could call it, is in some ways different, um, in a lot of ways different from the Catholic prayer book. Um, and that's, that's also something that's, that is on people's minds. So that is sufficiently backgroundish that it probably isn't going to affect that much of your reading of various moments in the play, but the idea of ghosts and the idea of of supernatural spirits is more a Protestant, I mean, sorry, is more a Catholic than a Protestant idea. The And that's one reason to think of the ghost in Hamlet as pulling towards Catholicism while Hamlet him, Hamlet's suspicion of the ghost is pulling towards Protestantism. So that is that you know so so if you want to keep that in mind sure keep it in mind. And that's why it might make sense to see one thing that Luther says in the 95 theses. Has anyone read the 95 theses? Some of them. Um Okay, well, they're worth reading. It's not that long. You can nail it up on your door. <laughs> so one of them, or three of them, are, um, they're three of, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to quote the three exactly, but um, I think it's 15, 16, and 17, say that the only hell purgatory or heaven there is. This is a radical thing to say and it's not something he's going to be saying uh, quite this straightforward and maybe he doesn't, doesn't mean it quite this straightforwardly. But he does say that what I, I shouldn't say the only, that what heaven purgatory and hell are are the experience that you have at the moment of your death. So if you despair, your experience of death is an experience of hell. Not that you're going to go to hell, but that you think you're going to go to hell. And in thinking that, the horror that you feel is hellish. And so the last moment, which the last moment of your life is a moment of hell. And it's a moment of hell that never ends for you because when it ends, you're not there. So the last experience you have is hell. If you feel guilty but hopeful, then you'll have a mixed experience of, which we can call anxiety. And that, for Luther, is purgatory. And if you feel confident of your own salvation, that, for Luther, is heaven. Now, does he believe in hell and heaven? Yeah, he totally does. Does he believe in purgatory? No. But he also does think that there is an earthly experience that the names or the words hell, purgatory, and heaven can name. And that suggests 
the strong way that Protestantism becomes a kind of theological psychology. That is, that it's about psychological experience in a way that Catholicism isn't. And the psychological experience in, Protestant, in Protestantism is one of anxiety. And so when Hamlet sees the ghost, the ghost is asking him to do something external. That is, kill, kill my murderer, kill my brother, kill your uncle. But for Hamlet, it becomes terribly internalized when he says, the spirit that I've seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Remember from Star Trek? Um, yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. So there, what Hamlet is saying is, yeah, this could be the devil appearing, but the reason that he is effective for me is a psychological one. It comes out of my own weakness and melancholy. And that's the internalization of these theological issues in the soul of Hamlet, in the mind of Hamlet. And that internalization, that happens a lot in Shakespeare. I think you can see it happening in Macbeth, that what happens in Macbeth is that first you have the witches who are such external figures and who are predicting the future. And then you have Lady Macbeth, who is happy about those predictions. And then you have the question about which I think is the crucial question in Macbeth and maybe even in all of Shakespeare, which is the question of the nature of time. And the way time seems to work in Macbeth in particular and maybe in Shakespeare in general is that it is first off, and I think in life in general, is that it um, has, you could graph it, I don't know if I want to say this, but I will, um, because I do want to say it. You could graph it hyperbolically. That is to say that um, in everyone's life, time starts off seeming long and horizontal, you could say, and just um, the place that the world that you live in is. And the idea of time being short is an idea that you know in theory but not in practice when you're young. And, you know, partly it's, um, there. there's, uh, anyone remember the first line of Dante? Of the Inferno? In the middle of my life. Yes, in the middle of the journey of our life, actually, not my life. Um, nel mezzo del cammino de nostra vita. In the middle of the journey of our life. Which means that Dante is how old? No. 30. Whoa. No, because I'm trying to think of, because I know they don't get all that old. No, 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 no. But according to the Bible, what are the years of man? Anyone know? I think it's according to Proverbs, might be Psalms. Three score and ten. Okay, so he's 35. Right, good. Good man. There, there's something, I, I have a version where there's like a comment on it where those first few lines he says, um, it says that like you can extrapolate 
not only how old he was, but like what year it is and what day yeah. it is right. from what he says. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's Good Friday of the year 1300. Yeah, and they come out to, per, to the mountain in, on, on Easter Sunday. Right. The sunrise. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so he's born, in, Dante was born in 1265. It's now Good Friday of the year 1300. He's halfway through life. And you guys are probably um, already old enough to be doing this, but if you're thinking, okay, I plan to live to be 80, is that what you guys plan to live to be, roughly? I don't know. I don't know about you. Climate change is just going to make living horrible, so, like... Yeah, but... I don't know. Are we going to be alive? It's going to suck. You mean because... Yeah, well, um, probably. Not me. Um, But... I don't know that. (laughs) Um... It might depend on who wins in November. Um, just saying. Um, it might depend on who wins on Tuesday or on Sunday. Um, so at any rate, fun talk. Um, if you're kind of unofficially planning to live to be 80 and you're like 20 now, you're thinking, well, quarter of the way, that's sort of a lot, but actually not that much. Um, when you hit 35, then you're on what the golfers call, or you start thinking of yourself as being on what the golfers call the back nine. Um, and people don't really think that at 35 anymore, but they certainly did in Dante's day. And Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing really to do when you're 35 except for, take a, except for spend two days trying to go under Satan's ball sack. Something that he actually does. Yes. Like you just make that up. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, that's the, the at the <laughs> towards the end of uh, Inferno. Yeah. Um, but you tend to think of time in terms of your own measure of time, which is how long you've lived. So if you're 10 years old, the idea that you're going to live another 70 years seems like totally sweet because that's like seven lifetimes left. But if you're 50 years old, you have less than one lifetime left. And so as you get older, it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's a cliche to say people start talking about how fast the years, um, how how quickly the years pass and kids are always rolling their eyes when their parents and especially when their grandparents are saying that. Uh, There's the famous um, amazing parable of Kafka's, um, which simply goes, it's one of the deepest things ever written and um, I'm not sure I, I can convey immediately how deep it is, but it's haunting. My grandfather used to say, life seems to me, uh, it's called The Next Village, and it goes, my grandfather used to say, life seems to me astonishingly short. Now, looking back at it, things seem to me so foreshortened that I can't imagine how, even without worrying about accidents or other things going wrong, a person can decide to ride to the next village because I, don't, I can't see how they would imagine that there was enough time to do such a thing. So that's the whole parable. Um, I spazzed it a little bit, but I got it essentially right. Um, and. What's really crucial about it are those opening words my grandfather used to say, which tells you that his grandfather is dead now and that he's remembering a time when he thought of his grandfather as a permanent part of life. Not my grandfather once said, but my grandfather used to say. 
So this was a time of life when things used to happen. And using when things used to happen, it feels permanent. But those days are over. Those days which were customary are now gone. Those days are over. And now he, the narrator, he, Kafka, is remembering what his grandfather used to say and feeling its point, feeling its power in a way that he didn't when it was just something his grandfather was in the habit of saying. And now what he's feeling is something like the truth of something that he learned at a time when time seemed endless and the time in which time seemed endless is now over. So after enough time, the endlessness of time comes to an end. And there isn't a particular moment when it comes to an end. That's what makes it feel endless, is that you know there's not some moment when you're going to go from, oh, time seems like it just, I can see it going on, spread out before me, um, as far as the eye can see, to, oh, my God, it's the Truman Show, that's a wall. Um, that's not the experience, but the erosion of the sense of the endlessness of time is one of the ways that time passes. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ways that time erodes. Time is its own erosion. So for Macbeth and for Lady Macbeth, the idea of the bank and shoal of time. For Faustus, the idea that you can simply stay within the moment, stay within the present time that time is something that lasts, that it's the nature of time to last. Obviously, that's not true in um, some official form. No one, strictly speaking, believes that by the time they're six or seven years old, or everyone knows that that's not true. But when you're six or seven years old, your knowledge that it isn't true is irrelevant knowledge, because you don't believe that it isn't true. So you know it isn't true, but you believe that it is true. When you're six or seven years old, the idea that you're ever going to be an adult is a fantasy. And it's not something, you know, you know, you know it as knowledge, you know that it's true, but you also think of your childhood as endless both ways. And you can even be impatient. That endlessness can, can be an experience of impatience. Um, and then that erodes. And that's what's happening. Well, that's what Shakespeare is actually really interested in in his very last plays, in the romances, um, that erosion of a sense of endless time. That's what you get in The Tempest um, and The Winter's Tale, especially, but also in Cymbeline and Pericles, where what you are seeing is characters who begin having a sense of time as endless, and then end as old, end in old age. So that Prospero says he's going to return now to Milan, that is Milan as we say now, he's going to return to Milan where every third thought will be his grave. So he started out with all the time in the world, and now there's not much time 
left. And I think Shakespeare is thinking about this starting really with King Lear. Um, it's, it's how he's thinking through issues of time in King Lear, where Lear begins over 80. He's, he's well past the three score and 10. He is, anyone remember? People who took the class last semester, for example? Yeah, four score and upwards. So the score part, three score and 10, four score and upwards, that's insisting that he has outlived a normal lifespan the biblical lifespan. It's an insistence that he's outlived that lifespan, and yet the entire play is about time keeping going. He keeps thinking he's about to die, that he's at the limit of time, and he's never at the limit of time. Time keeps extending. So Shakespeare's thinking about that in King Lear, and I think he's really thinking about it in Macbeth, which may be the next play uh, that he wrote after King Lear. It's not clear, but it's, it's a good candidate for the play that he wrote after King Lear. Yeah, Tony. I think that there is a, a great um, sort of allusion to this whole thing in, uh, uh, in, in Borges, with his line, Borges, with his line, uh, Oh, Time by Pyramids. Yes. Yeah, you know about that? Yep. Um, and I think, so of course, it's randomly written in the back. But like no, it's it's found in a book. It's found in a it's in the library found of Babel. In Babel, yeah. but yeah. but I think that that whole story that that specific line points to something that he's saying about the whole story. Uh -huh. But the ask about like what eternity is and the fact that if you're looking for um, like people who look for their own demise in a book mm -hmm. are essentially uh, they do not understand they do not grasp the, this. Uh, uh, how short existence is. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that the O Time Thy Pyramids line is, is pointing to that. I yeah, that's that great. I that there on purpose. That's great, yeah. yeah. Um, especially since the library itself is this bizarre architectural construction. Yeah, and well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the universe. Yeah. Or, or it, it could be interpreted, the other, the nowadays, uh, I like to interpret it more as the multiverse, wherein every book is, is its own universe because each one is essentially incomprehensible except for the few that are. Yeah. Um, that are. Yeah, yeah although each one may be in code, in which case it would be comprehensible. Yeah, it would be comprehensible, and, and, and that makes it even more similar to universes because if there are many universes, each one is comprehensible to the people living within it and not yeah. otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And um, Borges liked Shakespeare, so segueing back. Um, Borges was, bi was um, native bilingual in Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. um, so... In Macbeth, what you get is this idea, and I forget whether I said this about Faustus or not, but one of the strange things, I think I said this, but one of the strange things Faustus um, says is that he's an atheist. He's not worried about hell because he's an atheist. And did I mention this last time? Because it seems so inconsistent. It sounds familiar. Okay. So, yeah, so he says he's an atheist, and Mephistopheles says, um, WTF, bro. Um, <laughs> that's a direct quote. Uh, maybe not. Um, uh, here I am a devil from hell you know the way Christianity <laughs> describes things um, and you're an atheist and um, Faustus says to him uh, well you're not in hell you're here with me so why should I worry and then uh, Mephistopheles has what's probably the most famous line in the play um, Faust says, I see thee here and not in hell. And Mephistopheles says what's probably the most famous line in the play, why this is hell, nor am I out of it. Ooh. Yeah. 
Um, anyone know who picks that up um, 60 years later or so? Oh, how old is that? <laughs> nice, but no. Uh, 60 years later, it's Milton. It's um, Satan in Eden says, I myself am hell, which way I fly is hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep still opens wide, threatening to devour. So the idea that you can be in hell even if outside everything seems fine, that is a psychological idea. That is that hell is something internal. And Satan bears, the narrator of Paradise Lost says that Satan carries hell within him. And um, having hell within you, that's, that's the Protestant idea. That's the Lutheran idea. That's what Mephistopheles is saying. Um, the, uh, another neat moment in Dr. Faustus is Faustus tells, when it's almost near the end, Faustus tells the, um, his friends what's about to happen, which is that he has sold his soul to the devil and he's about to go to hell. And his friends should say, nay, God forbid. And Faustus has an amazing response to that. He says, God hath forbidden, but Faustus hath done it. So the, that is the difference between a major idea of Catholicism and a major idea of Protestantism in a single line, which is that Catholicism believes in free will and believes in salvation by works. That is, if you do good things, you should strive to do good things and especially strive to um, uh, be charitable, give to charity, um, show uh, generosity to others. And the more good deeds that you do, the more um, is on the credit side of your account book when St. Peter flips through it at the gates of heaven. The Protestant idea is not free will, but opposite? Determinism? Yeah, predestination. And so the Protestant idea is that you were saved by the grace of God. And Milton, by the way, doesn't believe this. He was a heretic. But this, is the, but this was what Luther and Calvin thought, that you were saved by the grace of God, that everything that you do is predetermined by God, that there is no such thing as free will. Um, Luther's famous treatise on this is called The Bondage of the Will. And that what will happen to you is um, simply based on whether God shows you grace or not. If he shows you grace, it's possible, this is hotly argued among Protestant theologians, it's possible if he shows you grace that you will be able to tell that he's shown you grace because you will find yourself doing good works. And so if you see that you're the kind of person who gives money to charity and um, who, uh, who goes to church all the time and who is very puritanical in your actions, that could be a reason for you to think that you're likely to be saved because it's because that's predetermined as well. You had no free will, so it's God making you give to charity, so that shows that you're probably one of the good guys. Um, however, that, that immediately brings in the possibility of confirmation bias, 
which is you want to prove to yourself that you're one of the good guys because you're worried that you're going to go to hell. So you give a lot of money to charity and you say, see, I must be one of the good guys. And it's not clear that proving to yourself that you're one of the good guys is legitimate proof that doing all those things is anything but you're trying to game the system or at least trying to um, figure out in advance what you're not supposed to be able to figure out in advance. So this is, as I say, a hotly argued thing. The most interesting, for me, the most interesting version of, of uh, people who believed in predestination were people... Um, this is part of what's called antinomianism, which is anti-lawism. And some of the antinomians um, essentially thought no reason not to party and have sex every minute of the day, or at least every minute of the day that you're awake, um, because it's not going to make any difference. And if you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven. It doesn't matter how you behave on earth. And if you're going to hell, you're going to hell, and it doesn't matter how to behave on earth. So party. And... Uh, Needless to say, religious authorities weren't happy with this interpretation of predestination, um, but it's there. It's a possibility. It's, it's one of the radical ideas that um, also saw the founding of, um, of the Quaker religion and the Shaker religion and various other radical uh, sects of Protestantism in the middle of the 17th century. So all of these are, are interesting ideas, their relevance to, as I say, their relevance to Dr. Faustus and to Macbeth is really uh, the question of the, inter the psychological internalization of what in Catholicism is an external state. And time is, I think, for Shakespeare, as it might be for many people, a really good example of the experience of that kind of internalization. That is, that what first on the outside was you, will, you have all the time in the world to be king. You will be king for um, years, 18 years as it happens, but um, you'll be king as long as anyone has a right to imagine that they'll be king. Um, poor Charles probably doesn't have that right to, doesn't have um, a right to imagine that he'll be king for 18 years, but who knows. Um, but you'll be king for a long time. And at the start of it, well, one of my, did I quote this line from The Simpsons for you? It's one of my favorite lines in The Simpsons. I think I probably did um, because I like it so much. Um, I actually use it as an epigraph for an essay. Um, it's Homer is uh, thinking of um, buying something on credit, and he says, and I wouldn't have to pay the money back for three years. What are the odds of that much time ever happening? Um, yeah, so um, that's what Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are thinking when Macbeth thinks that we, he can stay upon this bank and shoal of time when Lady Macbeth says she feels the future in the instant. In both those cases, the idea that there's a long time to come means that you feel secure and insulated in the present moment, that you're separated from the future by time itself, and that time is your friend because it separates you from the future. You can rely on time 
to separate you from the future. And again, I think that that's a very common psychological experience that people have. It's an experience that you guys have at the beginning of the semester. You don't, won't have to hand in papers for weeks. Um, there's all this time that, you, that, that gives you security. But of course, the very thing that separates you from the future is also what's delivering you to that future or delivering the future to you. It's coming towards you. Um, there's a great, just because we're talking about this, because I think this is so deep and it's, it's worth thinking about um, in so many different ways. Um, there's a great poem by John Ashbery. Uh, do people know who he is? Uh, contemporary poet. He died, I think, two years ago. Um, really, really wonderful poet. And a poet that... Um, Maybe, um, maybe one of the two or three great American poets of the second half of the 20th century. Um, but very interestingly, he's a poet who wrote in a very, very subtle American idiom that is probably going to get lost. And um, this poem is not very hard, but a lot of his poems are probably just not going to be powerful for people in 100 years because the idiom will change enough that they just won't see the subtlety of his use of that idiom. And he kind of knew that. But at any rate, this is a poem called At North Farm. Um, and um, North Farm is part of um, the uh, Scandinavian mythology. It's a, it's a place that's uh, separated from the world. It uh, doesn't really matter. Just the title is probably enough. But At North Farm. Somewhere... Someone is traveling furiously towards you at incredible speed, traveling day and night through blizzards and desert heat across torrents through narrow passes. But will he know where to find you, recognize you when he sees you, give you the thing he has for you? So that's the first stanza. Then the second and last stanza. Hardly anything grows here, yet the granaries are bursting with meal the sacks of meal piled to the rafters. The streams run with sweetness, fattening fish. Birds darken the sky. Is it enough that the dish of milk is set out at night? That we think of him sometimes, sometimes and always, with mixed feelings. So North Farm is when you're in the present, when you're on the bank and shoal of time, when you set the dish of milk out at night and where you live the way you're living and you live in security and peace. But in the meantime, someone, kind of like death, is traveling furiously towards you at incredible speed, traveling day and night through blizzards and desert heat. And that figure, let's call it death, traveling towards you, at incredible speed, also has a very, very long way to go. And the long way to go is how time strikes you when you're young. And the incredible speed is what you become more aware of as time passes. And I think that that is what Macbeth is about. I think that it's... Um, they're young enough to start. 
that it's at least possible that Macbeth could imagine having children with Lady Macbeth, even though the witches have denied it. There's a sense of predestination, which is you'll become king no matter what. Um, you will be king until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, until someone not of woman born comes after you. Uh, it's interesting, although we haven't talked about this, but it's interesting, isn't it, that Macbeth doesn't fear supernatural beings when he's told he only has to fear, as he understands it, someone not of woman born. So these supernatural beings, they don't seem to be of woman born. Um, the witches, Hecate, whoever they're, however they came into existence, they're not the children of mortal women. They are uh, perhaps the children of other witches, we don't know, but they're not the children of mortal women. The witches that James was talking to were, but the witches that, <coughs> that um, Macbeth is talking to, at least Hecate, and at least the spirits who appear to Macbeth when he sees the various visions that he sees, they're not of women born, yet he's not afraid of them. So that is maybe a version of diamondization, which is that his only fear is a fear of someone of woman born. And he's not fearful of supernatural beings. And if he now doesn't have to fear anyone of woman born, as he thinks he doesn't, if he doesn't have to fear anyone of woman born, then maybe he doesn't have to fear anything. And not fearing someone of woman born, that's because of equivocation. That's the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. But not fearing the supernatural, that's all Macbeth. That's all his own diamondization. Yeah. So then kind of in this vein, additionally, like with the religious lens, would it be possible to argue that like we could look at this as kind of an Adam and Eve story of, you know, the witches possessing the knowledge and like because Macbeth is kind of unafraid of that knowledge, it kind of is like just I, I don't know, and then Lady Macbeth representing Eve in which she kind of like, I guess, through, like metaphorically bites into that knowledge and actually mm -hmm. uses it. Yeah, okay. I, I it's think, kind of loose, but... Yeah, no, I think I see what you're saying, though, which is that it's certainly the case that the witches are offer knowledge and that knowledge is a temptation. Yeah. And it's a temptation that Lady Macbeth is quicker to... to, to, to <laughs> put into action. Put into action, yeah than Macbeth is, by saying, okay, so you're, you're bound to succeed, so do it. Whereas with Macbeth, it's, I'm bound to succeed, so I don't need to do it. And the, so I, yeah, I, th I think somewhere behind that, what, what you definitely do have is, is the idea of temptation and the idea that there's no need to give in to the temptation, but Macbeth does give in to it. And that's something that happens in Paradise Lost also. God foresees in Paradise Lost what he says is that um, he's telling the other angels 
that uh, Adam and Eve are really happy in Eden. Look at them. They're having a good time. They're saying prayers to me and singing songs of praise. Um, and that's great, but they're going to eat the apple, and um, they're ingrates. And so he knows what's going to happen. He claims that they have free will, but he also claims that it's definite that things are going to happen. So, again, that um, the question of reconciling knowledge of the future with the idea of free will, that's already there in Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth knows what's going to happen, or the witches know what's going to happen, and yet Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have free will, but still the witches know what's going to happen, uh, the spirits that know, as Macbeth calls them. Okay, so we should start. <laughs> See, this is, this is uh, why I insist the digressions are good. Um, so what we were looking at before break was um, the scene with, the, with Lady Macbeth uh, sleepwalking and full of anxiety and the doctor taking down what she says. And um, what we see Lady Macbeth doing is kind of hallucinating uh, repetition of, uh, of what we've already seen happen in the play. Cassie? Just as like a quick note, I thought it was very interesting that in the account of the person who saw Macbeth, James in there, yeah, 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 yeah. Simon but Foreman. The, the thing we had to read. Yeah. I don't know where that name came from then. Um, you were thinking of King James. Probably. The very last thing that he notes is the bit about, like, the doctor um, yeah. talking about Lady Macbeth. Um, yeah. And, like, other than that, his account, like, follows the chronology of the play, like, relatively closely. Like, it, it's, you know, it seems like he did see Macbeth. So it's kind of weird that that's the last detail that he gives us when that like is not the last thing that happens in Macbeth, and he tells us what happens after it. So it's not like he like left. Right. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. And I think what that suggests. So what? Do you, well, what do you make of that? Um, I think that. Since it's, it was just like a personal account, you could argue that that was sort of like a poignant enough moment that it really stuck out in his mind as, like, a moment of particular importance. Mm -hmm. um, but I think on the, like, flip side, you could argue, like, equally strongly that it's a sort of odd, like, signal of the fact that Lady Macbeth's story becomes kind of divorced from the plot, like, the A-plot nice. of Macbeth, where, like, that story becomes about his conflict with with Macduff, and he follows that conflict to its conclusion, and then at the end it's like, oh, and here's what happened to Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Which is kind of how it feels in the play, where yeah. she just sort of, she's such an important character for the first two acts, and then she, like, is sort of symbolically replaced by Lady Macduff, and then, like, we get one scene of her, and she dies off screen, which is sort of weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and I think that... Uh, one thing that it suggests is that that performance in 1610. So this is a few. So this is a revival of Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth was first performed in 1606, um, but it's uh, but Foreman is actually going to see, as you saw, several Shakespeare plays. Um, that the 
or you may not have seen it, depends which version you read, but that that performance, that scene was very touching, that he remembered it so vividly because it's, it must have been performed in a really touching way. And um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's sad, um, although it might very well mean that. It certainly does bring out the interestingness of, remember what the word syncope means and who used it, or syncope? So that's De Quincey's word for the knocking at the gate scene. He says there's a syncope within the play. And uh, what does syncope mean? It means something medical, but it also means something has a related meaning in music. Yeah, so what's syncopation? Say it louder. At the same time. At the same time? Or? Kind of slightly off. It's like, like offset from a normal beat. Yeah, it's offset from a normal from a normal beat. So um, what's happening is the beat comes after you're expecting it. Um, Ragtime is famous as syncopated music, and um, so the beat is delayed, and in that de that delay has an aesthetic effect. So what um, ragtime is is post De Quincey. Just that's not what he was thinking of. <laughs> Well, no, Ragtime, you know when Ragtime started? Like early 1900. Yeah, around 1904, Scott Joplin uh, was the great uh, composer of Ragtime. Um, so, but the idea is that you're expecting something to happen, and then instead there's a beat, which is a delay in time, and that delay has an aesthetic or a psychological effect. So for De Quincey, um, it also means medically, anyone? Know what it means? Oh, oh a, well, I mean, a, a syncope or, or, uh, is like, like the con there's a condition called vasovagal syncope in which mm -hmm. you uh, basically your blood pressure drops very severely if you are exposed to sometimes blood, sometimes it's a sudden uh, uh, like jolt or something. Like pe basically, people who get their blood taken pass out. Yeah, is that's vasovagal syncope. There's all other versions of it um, in which you pass out when you poop. Um, any sort of trauma causes the, uh, it's when your blood pressure drops very low, basically, like very suddenly. Yeah, so syncope actually means fainting. There you go. Um, and um, vasovagal syncope is, is one very common form of fainting. Um, yeah, so basically it's, it's time is just going along in a normal way, and then there's this kind of stutter and you faint. Um, and it's that, that, Stuttering or um, off-beatedness of time—that's what—that's what De Quincey is calling the knocking at the gate, and that's between the murder of Duncan and uh, the play taking up again. And for De Quincey, that's the moment of horror that you can't just keep going; that there has to be this kind of gap or. Um, beat, or or the play has to begin again. The story has to take up again after you're expecting it to take up again. There has to be first this um, period of horror and um, an inability to get things going again. So I think the same thing is happening with Lady Macbeth in her sleepwalking scene. That is that she's going back to 
what had happened before. And I think, Cassie, you're right, that the way Foreman goes back to that scene suggests that it's not part of the smooth flow of the play, that he goes back to that scene uh, in describing the play. Yeah? So if we are to take her either her note or her sort of cryptic statement as she's sleepwalking and the doctor records what she says in the same sort of vein as Claudius's confession, could we nice. also see hers as sort of null and void as she goes on to kill herself later? Yeah, it's certainly not a confession. It's um, she's haunted by what she's done, and she thought she was a person who would not be haunted. That is, she imagines herself as unhauntable, um, but that's what makes her, in Abel's terms, a false daimo. Uh, and she, it, it, it has the um, probative or forensic effect of a confession. That is, that's why the doctor says that uh, that the lady has heard that the nurse has heard something uh, that 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 the um, uh, the chamber woman has heard something that she shouldn't have heard, um, and so they know what everyone does know already, but they know officially from what she said that she's guilty. But it's not a confession that will bring her to absolution. It's remorse and not repentance. And what she's, what's happening here is she's being bitten by uh, what she's done. So um, we then have um, her saying, out, damn spot, out, I say one, two, and that's, uh, we, we compared that to the last syllable of recorded time. And then why then tis time to do it. Hell is murky. Fie my lord, fie a soldier and a feared. So um, why worry about hell? We know nothing about it. You're a soldier and you're a feared. What need we fear? Who knows it when none can call our power to account? So she's imagining she's talking to Macbeth. She's back in time. It's 18 years earlier. Although, of course, um, the play doesn't tell you how much time passes. Shakespeare rarely does. Um, yet, who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? So she's now remembering Duncan bleeding. Or, um, or Macbeth himself, as in like blood that rests with him, blood that is on his hands. Okay. I thought about that line because, yeah, the, 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 like the immediate response is like, oh, it's like when you, it's a bit like when you slaughter an animal, like there's so much blood you don't even realize it, but also the person who actually did the deed, there is so much blood on them. Yeah, and, and um, the word blood, of course, is one to follow up in Macbeth. That's like the first crucial word you're told uh, to follow up in, in Shakespeare. Uh, Duncan's first line, anyone remember? Yeah, close. What bloody man is this? Uh, and that bloody man is the sergeant who has been injured but is now describing what Macbeth has been doing. Then she does that nursery rhyme thing, the Thane of, wife, Thane of Fife had a wife, where she now she's trying to clean her hands. The doctor um, says, you have known what you should not. And the gentlewoman says, she has spoke what she should not. Um, Macbeth smells blood still. She tries to wash her hands and fails, and then the doctor uh, brings us up to speed, which is essentially that um, 
um, the Macduff's and Malcolm's powers and Seward's powers are on their way. Okay, let's go to 5-3. So what we've seen is the doctor with Lady Macbeth. Now here comes Macbeth with the doctor. So we've seen the doctor once before. Now we see him again, but with Macbeth. And he's got something to say to Macbeth. And Macbeth begins 5-3. Bring me no more reports. Let them fly all. Till Burnham Wood removed to Dunsinane, I cannot taint with fear. So he's really secure in the idea that Burnham Wood is not going to move to Dunsinane. And he's not worried about anything at all. Bring me no reports. Let them fly all till Burnham Wood removed to Dunsinane and I cannot taint with fear. What's the boy, Malcolm? So, no, why, why, why does he call him the boy, Malcolm? Yeah. Yeah, he's a child. He, um... When I killed Duncan, Malcolm was a child. And here it's clearly not 18 years later because that would make Malcolm at least in his mid-20s and more likely um, in his mid-30s. He's probably a teenager at the start of the play. But Shakespeare really isn't interested in the chronology here. It's Malcolm is going to, if he's, if he's represented as a teenager at the start of the play, he's going to be the same character now. Um, he's going to be the same character um, that we saw leave, exit the play. He re-enters the play, and we know that he's never had sex, right? And how do we know that? Because he says so, yeah, to, to Macduff. Yeah, so Shakespeare is um, keeping him as a child. Yeah, I, I mean, sorry, as a young man, as, as, a, as, an, as a late adolescent, yeah. I've like never really when he like goes on his whole like I'm such a bad person speech and then says no I was just testing you yeah I like never fully believe it like I don't I don't know whether I don't remember whether we said that Malcolm was like a good king or not when he actually did take the throne yeah not so but. good but that's not um, I think the question of I think I think that the fact that he's not a good king is sort of present at the end. In other words, it matters that Banquo's line takes over rather than Malcolm's line. But but other than that, it's kind of left in abeyance. We just know that at the end of the play, Malcolm is king, and um, he takes his authority very, very powerfully. But... If you know more, for example, if you're King James, you do know more, you know that he's not going to be a good king and that his line is going to come to grief as well. So the, um, but the question, you know, that scene is kind of awkward, the scene where he, where he talks about how um, bad he is and all, the, all, all his sins, and he says, I really shouldn't be king because I'm greedy and I want to be king. Um, <coughs> that doesn't quite make sense. Um, is there a way to make it convincing? 
or is it just yeah? Which part convincing? His all right. speech about how bad he is, or like when he like recants all of that and is like just kidding. Yeah, well, either part. Oh. I mean, the re- it, look if he re- if you can make the first part convincing, mm-hmm. then I think the recantation can be convincing. In other words, if if it is a if he does present himself convincingly as someone to be horrified by, then when he says J.K., that is um, a relief. And the very fact that he does say it, if the first part is convincing, the very fact that he does say it might um, be just as convincing, um, partly because it would be such a relief. Um, I don't mean convincing as in he really is just kidding. I mean, can you make that a plausibly... Um, naturalistic scene between Macduff and Malcolm? Um, or is it just too awkward to act in a way that anyone's comfortable with? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can kind of, like, alter, like, how believable Malcolm is by, like, how Macduff reacts to what he's saying. Because, like, if Macduff is concerned about, like, what Malcolm is talking about, then, like, it'll make it seem more concerning and, like, because Malcolm is like telling us all of this information, like we'll probably react to it similar to how Macduff does. So like seeing, like if he's like, I don't believe you, then like you're less inclined to believe him. Because uh-huh. like Macduff probably knows Malcolm better than like the, the audience do. Um, and then like the same with when he, when he goes back on it, Macduff's reaction is probably pretty key in that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it it is it does have to um, be based on. Macduff's reaction. Yeah, Cassie. I think you could also frame it as like a mostly like jokey conversation. That's like not a good adjective. But like yeah. play it is kind of like they're having this like hypothetical conversation where Malcolm is being like intentionally very hyperbolic and like is sort of exaggerating his statements and Macduff is like responding on par by being like, No, it's fine. They're leaving of all the women in Scotland and then like it suddenly drops into a serious register when nice. he like crosses a line and Macduff steps in and is like, "No, I guess you shouldn't be king and Scotland is just doomed." Like I, I don't know how it's usually played, but I think you could. It's like still not a super like it's hard to imagine that you would have that conversation with someone, but I think that like I think that like the experience of having conversations where like you're just kind of joking, um, and then suddenly you like cross a line. And yeah. like the conversational register changes very dramatically, and then you have to recant yeah, afterwards. Yeah, but yeah. it's like, no, I was just kidding. It was just like a hypothetical situation to test you. Yeah. Um, is like a sort of natural thing. But I also do think that that calls into question whether Malcolm is like sort of low key confessing to something. Right. Because if it is just like a joke, but it's a joke where he like crosses a line like that, then I feel like there's like a glimmer of truth in it that you, like, see, as, like, there frequently is in that kind of conversation. Uh-huh, yeah. I think that's great, yeah. I feel like a lot of the things that Malcolm says, like, aren't, like, if they were true, aren't things, like, you would say, especially in the way that he like says what? them. What? Yeah, like yeah, what? Like, it just feels, like, kind of awkward. Like, it doesn't seem like something that somebody would actually say if it were true, which kind of, like, makes me think that it's not. And then, like... And the way that Macduff kind of plays along with it, and then it's like, oh, it's, like, none of that is true. It's like, yeah, I kind of seemed like it before, just because 
the way that he says it and what he confesses to sounds a little odd. So give what's an example? Like, um, I mean, this part when he's talking about, like, his lust isn't stuff that you would, like, say. Like, it just seems like things that you wouldn't necessarily, like, that would be something that McDuff would see rather than Malcolm confessing to him about. Yeah. Because also, like, they're not, like, it's weird for McDuff to be Malcolm's confidant. Like, they don't have that kind of relationship. Right. So what if you, just following up on what Cassie said, um, which I think is, is great, um, what if you imagined that what Malcolm is faking? So here's the scene that Malcolm is faking, which is that in order to test Macduff, which is that he is going to be all um, uh, just just a boisterous young man with Macduff, assuming that Macduff will agree with him. So that the way he's saying these scenes is, uh, the way he's doing these scenes um, would be the kind of things you, you sometimes get on wiretaps, which is, man, we're going to have a good time doing corrupt things, aren't we? And um, trying to um, uh, induce Macduff, this, is, this isn't what he's really trying to do, but what he looks like he's trying to do is to um, be a partier just like him. So he's assuming that Macduff is going to enjoy these, these uh, Harvey Weinstein parties that he's imagining, and um, Macduff is um, not happy that Malcolm is being this way, but he's faking it. That is, okay, yeah, 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 there are plenty of, plenty of women you can do that with. Um, you know, Scotland is great that way. Um, you can do it and not get into any trouble because, because none of the women who don't want to do it with you um, will, you, you're not going to have to force yourself on anyone. So it's all good. And Malcolm says, no, 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 I, I, I want to go further. You know, you and I, men of the world. Um, you know that Monty Python routine, is your wife a goer? You guys know Monty Python? Uh, it's one of the most famous routines. You probably do. It's um, uh, two people on a bench. One is very prim and upright sitting on a bench, and next to him um, someone is saying, Is your wife a goer? A, A, know what I mean? Say no more? Um, and is, is uh, constantly asking this poor, guy's, this poor guy about what his wife is like in bed. Um, using all sorts of metaphors. So imagine that Malcolm is that kind of person or is presenting himself as that kind of person um, and is imagining that Macduff does know what he means. In other words, the scene looks like I shouldn't be king because I would be a tyrant and I would um, take cruel advantage of my power. Um, But what if it were instead, (coughs) wouldn't it be great to be king because of the cruel advantage that I could take of my power, um, you're not objecting, are you? Um, or you may object. And, um, but he's doing it in such a way that's semi-sarcastic or semi, um, you know, you wouldn't really object to this because king, that would be me, and that would be fun, and you could, be, you could join in the fun. Um, so is that sort of what you're thinking, Cassie? And then um, Macduff is too... You could play him as too willing to hold his nose and um, fake the boisterousness 
that Malcolm is presenting him with. And um, he's trying to say, yeah, you could do this without, um, and it's fine um, because it wouldn't do much harm. Um, but maybe he would do it more boisterously than um, he really feels. And then finally he'd say, no, enough, I can't do this. And that's what Malcolm is trying to get him to. So there might be a way, if you ever direct Macbeth, think, think to yourself whether you could get it to work that way, um, that the audience would be able to see that Macduff was um, uncomfortable but was faking it, and um, they wouldn't at first see that, but it would be important that the audience not see that Malcolm is faking it. The scene wouldn't work if it looked like Malcolm was faking it. The, uh, the other way of doing it is just to have Mac Macduff be the kind of, mor be a moron. Um, that is, he is moronic for leaving his wife and children alone. Uh, that was a really stupid thing to do. Lady Macduff really is pissed at him for doing that really stupid thing. And um, it could be that even though he's ultimately the hero of the play, he's, um, he's sort of stupid. And um, that, that would be um, a way in which what we can see, you know, we could see through what Malcolm is doing, but Macduff, Macduff wouldn't be able to. And that would, that would correspond with um, if you imagined his character as um, not very bright, uh, that would be a way of confirming that. Um, and that would then make him an agent of fate. He doesn't have to be bright to be an agent of fate. Um, all he has to be is not of woman born. Um, but just notice that um, in this scene that Macbeth says, what's the boy Malcolm, was he not born of woman? So you notice how he's changed the phraseology. Um, he doesn't say, what's the boy Malcolm, um, is he not of woman born? But that's not what he says. He says, was he not born of woman? Emphasizing on, uh, uh, emphasizing the word woman. And then he misquotes what the spirits have said. The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus, fear not Macbeth, no man that's born of woman shall e'er have power upon thee. But that's not what they said. So he misquotes what he's quoting here. And um, that shows you, and in, in this case, it's also a, a kind of uh, way of um, fooling the audience, that shows you that Macbeth has misunderstood, but we still, at this point, misunderstood as well. Um, the boy Malcolm, hang on to that phrase, <coughs> because you're going to see Antony call Octavius Caesar the boy Caesar. And um, may very well be that Shakespeare wrote those two lines on the same day. Okay, see you guys Friday. Yes.